This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Hal Gregerson is executive director of the MIT Leadership Center and senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management. His new book is Questions Are the Answer, a breakthrough approach to your most vexing problems at work and in life. Hal has been named one of the 25 most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50, and he was winner of the 2017 Distinguished Achievement Award for Leadership by Thinkers 50. He's co-authored 10 books, including The Innovator's DNA, Mastering the Five Skills of Disruptive Innovators. He's also founder of the 424 Project, an initiative dedicated to rekindling the provocative power of asking the right questions in adults so they can pass this crucial creativity skill onto the next generation. He's the creator of a unique executive development experience called Leadership and the Lens, Learning at the Intersection of Innovation and Image Making, a course that draws on his two passions, photography and innovation, to teach participants how to radically ask better questions and change their impact as leaders. In this episode, Hal and I discuss the importance of posing questions and allowing them to sink in rather than jumping to answers, to solutions. We talk about the ways in which putting yourself in a novel, even uncomfortable situation compels you to ask questions that not only inform your understanding, but can also challenge your grasp of the status quo. He provides a really compelling example of his method for setting aside a full four minutes to do nothing but generate questions about a particular dilemma or challenge and how that exercise alone can alter your perspective. For more about Hal, go to halgregerson.com. And for those who are curious about my father's photography, which we discuss in this episode, check out victorfriedmanphotography.com. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I'd much appreciate it if you would rate it leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this so others are more likely to find and enjoy it too. And now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from the wisdom and experience of big thinker Hal Gregerson. Hal, welcome to Work and Life. Glad to be with you, and thank you for the chance to have a conversation tonight. Well, thanks. Thanks for being here. So I'm so excited about uh, this book and, and the project that it represents. I see my role as an educator and as a consultant as helping people to ask better, smarter questions about their lives and about their work. So I think you and I are very much in the same business. How do you see your role, and what was 
the critical moment or episode in your life or career that led you to focus on inquiry, on, on questions as the answer? You know, some critical moments are instantaneous ahas, too, and others grow on you <clears throat> over time. And I think this is a combination of a bit instantaneous and a bit of growth. So 30 years ago, I was actually researching and studying with intensity leaders who could land in any country and not knowing the language or the culture or context, figure out ways to make it work in mm. the work and non-work parts of their lives. Mm. So you were and, studying people who were expats who were coming into foreign countries, and how did they, how did they succeed or fail? Exactly. So mm -hmm. one of the people I interviewed way, way back was a guy named A.G. Lafley, and he was not oh. then mm -hmm. anywhere near the CEO, uh, being the CEO of P and Procter & Gamble, P&G. Mm -hmm. And um, he was actually in Asia. Um, I never forget sitting down with a list of questions that I was going to ask A.G., and by the end of the conversation, I'm not kidding, Stu, he'd asked me far more questions than I'd ever asked him in the conversation. Wow. And it was just indicative of so many other leaders like him who are moving from country to country and their ability to be inquisitive about the things they didn't know they didn't know and an awareness that there's those blind spots in their life mm -hmm. that enable them to accomplish things through and with other people that other leaders, global leaders, expatriates moving from country to country, frankly, um, they were they were miserable failures hmm. without the ability to be deeply inquisitive and ask questions that would uncover things they otherwise wouldn't see. Hmm. So it was this capacity to be open to experience and to actively pursue knowledge from, from other people and to, I guess, acknowledge your own limitations that led them to success. Absolutely. And so, you know, it, it that openness to new experience mm -hmm. was actually this psychological construct from the research that you're probably well aware of. And that was the starting point for me. It's like, hmm. there's something more to this openness to new experience. And it's like, what's underneath that? Hmm. And as I dug deeper underneath it, for me at least, this capacity to ask questions that other people weren't asking was right at the core of it all. So how did this then, this, this insight that evolved through your seeing, you know, how the inquisitive mind was really the, the key to differentiating those who were successful or not and being able to adapt, how did that sort of shift your focus in terms of your, your research, your practice, teaching? At a, at a very broad level with this global leadership work, it was actually openness and new experience and inquisitiveness. And then about 15 years later, in a research project with Clayton Christensen and a colleague, Jeff Dyer, around this book called The Innovator's DNA, we literally interviewed 100-plus of some of the world's most innovative leaders. And so... Hmm. It was a chance to talk with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Nicholas Zenstrom, who founded Skype, and Diane Green, who founded VMware. And we discovered that they had patterns of action in their everyday work and life of ways in which they behaved that enabled them to ask questions and get answers that others were missing. And one of these five skills was they regularly, frequently, consistently, systematically um, asked questions that just challenged the status quo. Mm. 
Um, and, and, and then that work, at the end of that, there was this ability to ask questions combined with starting to answer them by getting out and talking to people and observing things and experimenting and trying stuff. At the end of that, Stuart was like, well, what causes us to ask these questions in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> go on. So that was, the, that was the, the, the motivation that led you to go deeper, further with this topic? Exactly. And so then it was like, okay, let's go back to the Genesis moment. What causes these questions to start? And, mm -hmm. and that led to interviewing 200 plus more of these leaders around planet Earth with Danielle Lamar, who's the CEO of Cirque du Soleil, um, that sort of a person, and, and others like him to just figure out, Ed Catmull at Pixar, um, how, do, how do you ask questions? What causes you to ask questions? And what I realized through these interviews is, it's literally what I just said. Michael Sippy, who's a VP of Product at Medium, just basically told me, I put myself in, myself in situations that cause me to ask questions, which is an intriguing way to look at life. Instead of running from the chance to ask or be asked a tough question, it's like, put myself purposefully with somebody or in some place where it's so divergent from my normal everyday experience mm -hmm. and walk of life that somehow it's going to provoke me to ask questions that otherwise I wouldn't ask. Hmm. And that was the pattern of their action. Instead of staying tightly, you know, perfectly, wonderfully um, tucked away in this isolation cocoon, they just busted right through that in their everyday work and life that enabled them to get surprised with these questions. Well, and to be in situations, you're saying, to to place themselves in, in new environments, new social environments that that compelled them to be inquiring because they didn't know what was going on. Do I, do I have that right? No, absolutely. And, and it's very purposeful. So hmm. I, I used when I, I, I lived in Abu Dhabi for a few years and had the chance to meet a man named Fadi Gondor who founded a logistics company called Aramex, which is hmm. like DHL UPS, and it's quite successful in that region of the world. And here's the logic for Fadi around the power of questions in building a better Aramex company. He lands at Dubai at 2 o'clock in the morning. He's got a meeting at 8 o'clock with the regional leaders. And instead of taking a limo from the airport to the hotel, he's thinking, hmm, I'm the CEO. I'm isolated. People don't tell me sometimes the things that I need to hear or they, you know, they just hide information from me. How might I get from the airport in a way that would help me actively seek some passive information or data sitting out there that would be super helpful? And so instead of taking a limo, he asks an Aramex delivery truck driver to pick him up. Okay. Fadi has enough trust in the system because he does this more than once. He asks simple questions. What's working? What's not? Why? And then he shuts up. <laughs> he listens. And by the time he gets to the hotel, it's crystal clear that, wow, we've got some operational issues here that make this driver's job difficult to do. We mm -hmm. need to do something about it. And that's what he did the next day, the whole day, trying to problem solve mm -hmm. what's working and how do we move around things so that it will work better. But had he not uh, placed himself in that uh, novel circumstance and 
inquired as to sort of the fundamentals of uh, this driver's or these driver's experiences and then shut up and listen to the responses, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to do that diagnostic work. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right. So what then enables people to have the, uh, the wisdom, let me call it, to, to have this kind of frame of mind and, and to have the confidence, I suppose, to, uh, to pursue new experiences that you know, are surprising and filled with uncertainty uh, and, and to have this inquisitive mind. What are the, what are the key ingredients to making such a, an approach work? Some of it is honestly how people grow up. It's the kind of schools they went to and families they grew up in. So you've got Eric Gadish, who's the chairwoman of Bain and Bain Consulting. And when she's growing up, she has parents who are deeply committed to Eric asking questions when she goes to school, to the point of asking her, what kind of question did you ask when you're at school? And so then at school, every time the teacher would say any questions, Eric's hand would shoot up. And she'd always have two, three, four questions about whatever the issue was. And she was so um, supported by the adults in her world in that process. Um, One of them, in fact, one of her junior high school teachers wrote in her little junior high school yearbook, Arit, always ask those two or three questions, maybe four. Stay curious, Arit. And that's exactly what has served her so well going forward in everyday life. is that kind of experience growing up. So, Hal, what are the other um, sort of uh, sources for an inquisitive mind? What if you grew up in an environment where you were mm, not rewarded for inquiring but had to have answers and uh, were perhaps even punished or shut down for asking questions that were challenging or provocative? Um, if, if that was the world, well, frankly, that was the world that I grew up in, for what it's worth. That's, um, I, I that's worth a lot. Let's hear more. <laughs> well, my father was tall and strong and deep, booming voice. And in today's terms, he would have been for sure emotionally abusive because the world completely revolved around him. Wow. And there were times of physical abuse, but it, <laughs> on this continuum of that, it was quite mild compared to what so many people deal with. Mm-hmm. But as a young child growing up in that world, um, your whole world is around how can I make this person happy so I I don't get in trouble and people around me don't get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so as a younger child, I didn't ask very many questions. But what I learned as a teenager was if I formulated the right question, it could actually actually deflect some of the danger in my world. (laughs) How do you mean? How did that happen? Um, you know, so I would try to think through very carefully, how could I ask a question that might shift my father's way of looking at this or what he's paying attention to so that um, we don't have to deal with whatever the issue of the day is. Hmm. Um, and so part of it was, you know, unintentionally growing up, realizing that when you ask questions that change the conversation, it actually can be a quite protective mechanism. So sometimes these things can lead to that sort of context. But uh-huh. back to your question of, you know, how do we create this questioning capacity? It's really 
how do I develop the motivation mm -hmm. to put myself in situations where I, Hal Gregerson, or used to, are going to be wrong instead of right about something, really uncomfortable because it's being really wrong about something, and reflectively quiet enough that you don't run from that feedback that says something's off in the way you're working and operating in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we do that either for ourselves or for other people. And in a leadership role, um, someone like Ed Catmull takes this dead seriously. How do you it's mean? like you walk into Pixar or Disney Animation, and every day when Ed would walk through the Steve Jobs building at, in Emeryville at Pixar's headquarters and, and where they do most of their work, he's thinking to himself, how can I build a sustainably creative culture? And at the core of that, how can I create safe enough spaces that people will ask and engage with the toughest questions that we need to deal with? So I'm going to go way back just for a moment to a junior animator who's just been hired into that system. And this one junior animator explained to me in an interview that in his, in his university program, the very beginning of this animation program, the department chair told all the students in the room, there's one thing you will do that will get you kicked out of the program instantly. Uh-oh. They're, they're all, like, perked up with their ears. I'm listening now. And his, his answer was, if you have information that someone else needs to solve a problem and I hear that you don't share that with them, you are out of this program. Hmm. Now, that's so counter to what we grew up, most of us, with our schooling experience. But what that department chair was doing was preparing these animators to walk into Pixar, mm -hmm. where that's a cultural value there. It's like you're responsible, obligated to give what you know about whatever it is to mm -hmm. help make that movie better. And so directors of movies are the top of the food chain in any, organ in any um, movie-making organization, and they are right. Pixar as well. Mm -hmm. And those are the folks least likely to get the tough questions, the crucial questions that will cause them to think twice about what they're doing and mm -hmm. make it better. Mm -hmm. So Ed intentionally creates this space, a room, a place, a moment that people know, the directors know. They walk through the brain trust door, which is what it's called, signaling we have to trust each other when we're in this room and use our brains to ask and answer the toughest questions about this particular movie's you know, success at this point from beginning to end. And so you have 15 to 20 other directors and senior people sitting in that room. You're obligated to tell the director about, in this case it might have been Brad Bird for The Incredibles 2 movie a few years ago, which 10 years before was his first experience with the Brain Trust Group. For three solid hours, they deliver all of the positive and negative feedback and all the tough questions to Brad Bird. And at the end of that three hours, they're exhausted because for most of these directors, the stories they're pitching are their personal stories. So it's not mm. just criticism or feedback about the movie at, at the stage it's at, no, it's, but it sort of bites. It's their identity that's being uh, yeah. put on trial in a sense, right? Exactly. So there's so a lot of defensiveness there. Totally. And so Ed works really hard to get ego mm -hmm. and power out of that space and to make it totally focused on making a better movie. And in spite of all that, at the end of three hours, they're exhausted. They go home for the weekend. 
And they do this over and over and over to make an idea that sucks in their terms mm-hmm. into one that's simply beautiful and fantastic. But there is no simple path to do that beyond creating a safe enough space mm-hmm. for these directors to get the really tough, catalytic questions posed and addressed and talked about. Which they do by modeling. I mean, that by by setting setting the, the tone, setting the stage, as it were, for, uh, you know, that's what's expected here. And yeah. so that's one thing that, that leaders can do. Uh, for those who are listening, um, in, if, they're, if they're wondering, as I know some are, um, you know, I'd like to be better at, at asking questions and, you know, breaking through uh, deadlocks in, in, you know, or, or impasses in, in negotiations uh, or, you know, having a better understanding of my kids and what they really need from me. Can you take us through what you've learned through your research and what you write about in, in Questions of the Answer, what the key elements of, of good questions are? Um, I have a, to me, the kinds of questions I deeply care about, and the focal point of the book are catalytic ones. And what I mean by that's the following. These are questions that surface and make clear, I have a false assumption about this part of my world, that's dead wrong. And it's posed and framed in a way that causes me to not only realize I'm wrong about a really core assumption, but it energizes me instead of depresses me to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And it's those kinds of questions that make that move us forward in the world. And so that's the kind I care deeply about. These kinds of questions are often very short instead of long. Okay. Uh, Narayana Murthy told me that basically um, when people ask him long, complex questions, he thinks they don't know what they're talking about or they're trying to confuse him, one of the two. <laughs> So short questions can be super powerful, and it's really just trying to figure out the lay of the land, the territory. And one of the, the methods that I found to generate these powerful catalytic questions, I discovered 20 years ago in a class with a group of leaders trying to deal with some gender diversity and issues of promotion within an organization. And we were stuck, Stu, dead stuck. And that moment when you're stuck with a group of people, energy's low, it's usually negative, and you don't quite know what to do. And I had this insight, given some reading I'd been doing of an educational philosopher, Parker Palmer's work, and the insight was, stop the conversation. And I did, and I said, let's ask nothing but questions about this issue we're wrestling with and stuck mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And the rules were no answers to any of the questions, no explanations about why you're asking the questions, just questions. Just questions. And it's so tempting to fill the space between a question with an answer after or a preamble before it. And the rules are, don't do that. And we filled up, this is the day of blackboards, we filled up the walls with hundreds of questions in the next 20 minutes. And at the end of that, I noticed, wow, the energy level in this room just mm-hmm. shot out the roof. Mm-hmm. And we had ideas we didn't have before, and progress and movement was being made. And I'm like, what happened there? And since that thing 20 years ago, I call it now a question burst, but it's basically I've used this with thousands of leaders in all kinds of cultural contexts. And basically, 
all you got to do, and we could do it, you know, live if we had the time, but it's like, Stu, tell me your biggest challenge you're facing right now, personal or professional. Mm -hmm. And in two minutes or less, explain it to me. Don't over-explain it so I'm stuck like you are. And then we're going to set a timer for four minutes and generate nothing but questions nonstop during that time. And what happens when you do that? If we do that, we get to the end of it, and 80% of the time... We are emotionally in a better place. Hmm. Because the, the issues have been aired and brought into conscious uh, consideration, or is it something else? It's partly the issues have been aired. It's partly, you know, it's so hard to not answer questions, especially hmm. as leaders. We, we're like genetically designed to give answers. But when we stop giving answers, in fact, 90% of them are already wrong anyway for these issues. When we stop giving the answer, when we stop explaining, when we let the questions hang there and we work with the silence, it actually suspends our convictions and allows us to ask and see things we'd otherwise miss. I think that's what's going on. So, Hal, and anyone else out there who's interested in my father's photography, it's victorfriedmanphotography.com. Why am I mentioning that? Because Hal is a passionate photographer. And one of the very cool things about his great book, Questions Are the Answer, is the photography. Um, so, Hal, how do you blend uh, photography and your, uh, your, your passion for helping people solve problems by asking better questions? I actually looked at your father's website, and one of his pictures is called Man in Shadow, mm-hmm. where he was looking at a sidewalk and a wall, and he composed, I think, the frame for the image, and then he waited for something really interesting to happen. And it's a powerful image of a man in a wheelchair mm-hmm. with dark evening or morning light casting a profound shadow. And that logic is something I learned from Sam Abel, who I collaborate with on this executive education program called Leadership in the Lens. Sam's a 30-plus year National Geographic veteran, and one of the things he talks about is compose and wait. Compose a frame that you're so committed to that you're willing to wait for something interesting to happen. And that's what I think your father did with Man in the Shadow. Hmm. It's what I learned from Sam in the first workshop, and um, it's been life-changing because when you commit deeply to a particular setting, in one case it was an antique car, it led the leader, it led the owner of the car after 15 minutes of taking pictures of the exterior. I didn't know the owner was sitting there. He invited me to get inside of the car. And then I had this wonderful wide-angle lens, and I just sat in the back seat and waited for something interesting to happen in the front windows. And finally, this man, 15 minutes later, and his wife on the other side, they poked their heads in, and the man's like, do you come with the car? (laughs) And I had to hold really still so I could hold my composition, but we had a great laugh. And it was this profound, vulnerable moment of connection with some other human being on planet Earth in the process of making a photograph that would look inevitable, but took a huge amount of work to become that way. It was this compose and wait logic. Compose and wait, that, you know, rings to me as a direct analogy to what it takes to be um, 
uh, effective, I suppose you could say, as 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 a questioner, as a as a as a questioner that that helps to open new new paths of insight. Right? If you you know commit to the 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 state of mind of inquiry and then yeah. wait. As well, they... and a fun example of that, Stu, is I have the, I've had the chance to interview both Scott Cook, who founded Intuit, a, a global financial services company, makers of Quicken and QuickBooks. And and a recent CEO Brad Smith, and uh-huh. this was about ten years ago. Scott Cook would walk into Brad's office and other people's offices. He's an incredibly innovative, inquisitive guy. He would see things all over the into a world mm-hmm. that could be better. He'd drop a list onto Brad's desk, and he'd say, "Here are fifteen things that I think would make it so much better around here." And Brad would dutifully say to the owner and chairman, "Well, thank you, and I'll add it to my forty, and we'll try to work on those things." And there came a point at which Scott and Brad, which is kind of unusual, both of them got 360 feedback, where other people gave them feedback on their work and their leadership. Yes, yes. And one of Scott Cook's feedback points was, when you drop those lists on people's desks, they're helpful at one level, but disruptive at another. Scott chose to engage with a coach, even though he could have chosen not to, and worked with that coach for a year or so, And instead, and then here's how the process happened with Brad after that coaching work. Scott would walk in the office. He'd sit down with Brad. He'd, you know, the gratuitous, how are you doing? And then he'd ask a question. What are you wrestling with, Brad? And Mm -hmm. he would shut up. And Scott would just be quiet and listen. And he'd understand, Mm -hmm. where's Brad coming from? What's the issue? Mm -hmm. And by the end of that conversation, then it was a second question from Scott, which was, how can I help Mm-hmm. Those are profoundly different conversations, and yet I just have deep admiration for Scott's willingness to learn mm-hmm. how to be more inquisitive in a way that invites other people to raise their tough issues, their tough questions, explore them, and then together try to do something about it. So what what is it that makes it difficult for people to ask questions of themselves? What What are the... Um, what have you seen in, in your work, particularly with respect to uh, the dilemmas that people face in trying to fit work in with the rest of life or the rest of life in with work? What are the, some of the difficult questions that people are reluctant to ask themselves? Um, you know, there was a profound moment. Um, sometimes it's just stepping back and taking the time to ask some very simple questions about mm-hmm. what are my prior- what are my priorities, mm-hmm. where am I placing my resources, mm-hmm. and is it what I really want to be doing? Is and it I will, what I really want to be doing? Is that is that one that causes that you've seen causes uh, people? I don't know to be fearful of what they might discover if they were to pursue such a question. Um, I think. Th- that is part of it. I think Oprah Winfrey's question at the very core, which is, what is your intent, mm-hmm. is, can be a disturbing question if it's not clear. If your intent uh, isn't clear. If intent is not clear. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a disturbing question if when you undercover the, uncover the intent, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's ego and self-centered driven intent. Those are awkward moments. And we all have them. I do, too. Mm-hmm. 
You mean to find that what your your intent is 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 to be serving yourself and not others? That that's that's a yeah. that's a hard thing to see in yourself. Is that what you is that what you're saying? I think it is for most of us. And um, I mean, I'll never forget. It's still etched in my heart and head. This conversation with a friend who happened to be a CEO of a global not for profit organization. And it moved from initially professional conversation to personal conversation. And he basically said his teenage daughter, 13 years old, um, was they had a great relationship as she was growing up, and now she's a teenager, she's starting to pull away. And his question to me was, how can I keep this relationship strong? <laughs> and I said, I don't have a good answer for you, but... Let's do this question burst thing. We were sitting in a restaurant, so we literally got out napkins, and I happened to have a pen, and we set a timer for four minutes. I'm like, let's generate all the questions we can. Uh-huh. And you know, these are the questions that we created, and and there they they were provocative for him. And do you like, remember any of them? I do. You know, they're like, do I listen enough? Mm-hmm. Do I push too hard? Do I helicopter too much? And then it was kind of like, what is she best at? And do I praise that? Hmm. When do her eyes sparkle? What do her eyes say when she expresses concern? What were some of the talents of hers that complemented yours? What are her greatest worries? And what does your schedule say that matters most to you? What's so uniquely independent about her? What are her greatest areas of independence from you? And the last question I remember was, you know, what has she learned lately from her own experience? Wow. And we got to the end of Those the Those are questions. great. They were, they were profound. And we got to the end of it, and there was this dead silence in this very noisy restaurant. Uh-huh. And I could see emotionally something was going on inside, and with some level of emotional response, he said, I thought the hardest thing would be losing her and my relationship with her. And I've just realized the hardest thing is letting her grow and flourish. Oh, mm-hmm. I need to let her find her. And, and he basically moved from a very self-centered question at his, one level. His how loss. Can I, how can I keep my relationship right. strong to how can I let her find her? It was profound. Mm-hmm. And and you helped him to get there by just freeing him up to ask uh, the questions that were on his mind about, well, I guess whatever occurred to him as he thought about what was important in that relationship. That Those are some wonderful uh, questions that I think anyone can use really about any uh, important relationship in one's life, as, you know, to be thinking from the perspective of the other. Uh, and and what their needs and interests are, and that's 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 a really uh, powerful way that you've just described of how you get beyond that uh, sense of uh, selfishness, and you know, and what you might discover um, when you start to ask yourself questions. So, um, I, I'd like to stay on this subject of of uh, the roles that parents and teachers and, and coaches mm-hmm. can play. To, to help young people discover, um, you know, the, the inquiring mind uh, and, uh, that they have within them and how to, how to cultivate that. What have you learned about that? 
What was truly amazing, there were two, there are two elements to it. Number one is, and great questioners as adults often grew up either in school settings or home settings where it was a project-centered sort of world. They may have gone to Montessori schools or international baccalaureate schools, or they may have just had a parent, an uncle, an aunt, a neighbor, who basically noticed somebody's interest and helped them generate a project that would cause them to ask better questions in a literal sort of way. Now, Jeff Bezos' father, grandfather, bought a broken-down tractor one summer before Jeff arrived at the farm to be there for the summer. And the point of the broken-down tractor was to, tr- was to teach Jeff, who was intellectually smart, that the tractor was smarter than him. Hmm. And you had to try this and try that. And, you know, 30 things later, after one part of it you're trying to fix, it finally works. And, you know, he learned from that the relentless questioning and relentless problem-solving. And that kind of story is pretty systematic, where it's like, Am I paying enough attention as an adult in this young person's life that I have some inkling of what sparks their heart and causes them to just be focused on something interesting? Mm -hmm. And then the second part becomes creating this safe space for questions to flourish. B. Perez, who's the chief sustainability officer at Coca-Cola, um, grew up in Cuba, moved with her mother, who was a single mom to Florida, I think. Not an easy growing up at all, but she ended up, you know, doing exceptionally well in her work. And with her two younger kids, her husband and she, they have family meeting time mm-hmm. at the end of each day at dinner. And if anybody has a challenge they're wrestling with, it's like family meeting time. Mm-hmm. And from the youngest person in the room in the family to the oldest, they start asking questions of the person with the challenge. Hmm. And they've created a safe enough table conversation space that they actually ask tough questions and explore them around the issue. Mm -hmm. What else can parents do? Um, What else can people who are parents and and want to spend more time, more attention, more focused effort on cultivating their family lives, as so many of our listeners are, are, are you know, trying to find new solutions to. What ideas um, do you have about how to pursue those kinds of uh, questions? I mean, there's lots of things we can do. So Michael Sippy is the VP of Product and Medium. He, with his family, they have two little girls. Mm-hmm. They intentionally buy saga-length books like Little House on the Prairie, multiple books taking a family through life. Mm -hmm. And I asked Michael, why do you do that? And he's like, when we read those books with real issues in real life over a long period of someone's, you know, the course of their life, questions get raised. Mm -hmm. Our daughters start asking us stuff about why this and why that. Mm -hmm. And so that was a purposeful attempt to build this questioning muscle, was to bring that into their space. Another mm-hmm. option is literally inviting people who were not from our same isolated, generic, look like us sort of space and think like us space. Mm-hmm. Invite them into our homes. Mm-hmm. Explore things across those different boundaries. Ask and answer some of the tough questions, you know, in that, in that kind of world. Other people, we, we happen to have a couple of our grandchildren with us for a few months. Nice. And, and one of our granddaughters has started this practice of what mistake have you made today? 
Excellent question. <laughs> and, you know, we give people high fives. It's for, like for, we, for, for admitting to the mistakes that they've made or for asking about them? For admitting to them. Uh-huh. It's like, ah, oh, high five, man. You did it, you know? And it, it's, mm-hmm. it's this notion that failure is an opportunity to, to see and ask very different questions of ourselves and of the world around us. Yes, yes. The only failure is the failure to learn, right, from, from the experiences that, that go awry. Um, so how does this then play out in, in so many of the, you know, the, the cultures of, at work that, that folks live in are their counter to this notion of uh, inquiring? And instead, people are expected to have answers. You know, don't, don't complain unless you have a solution. Um, you know, what, what advice do you have for, for people facing those kinds of pressures? So for the last 10 years, I've had the luxury of working with colleagues in Forbes and Credit Suisse doing this most innovative companies list every year in the world. And you look at the top of that list, and they systematically are similar around a couple of dimensions. Number one is they, they open up and create a safe enough space for people to find and solve problems. That's your job when you show up in the morning. Just make this place better for us and for the customers that we're serving. Find and solve problems while you're here. And that's the, that's the foundation from which this flourishing, inquisitive, questioning approach to our work happens. Mm-hmm. Now, the opposite of that is when organizations, profit or not-for-profit, when they lose the focus on who they're serving, that external shareholder, stakeholder, you know, customer, as well as the people. That, when they lose that sense of we're doing this for a bigger reason, it turns inward to ego and politics. Hmm. And when those things start to take precedence over finding and solving problems, that's the point at which questions are shut down and people's engagement goes right along with it. And so it's really, as a leader, it's when I show up in the morning, the issue is, am I creating a safe enough space for people to come to me and to their colleagues and say, I discovered X and think we should try to make it better by doing Y? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really encouraging that, um, but if you're, if you're facing an environment in which you're you know, yeah. punished for asking questions, yep. what do you do? How do, you, how do you start to work around that, as, as perhaps you might have when you were a kid? Sure. Well, uh, a very simple, straightforward suggestion on my part would be, even if the system is shutting you down, don't let it, even at your local level area. Mm-hmm. It's like, what do I have influence over? Where and how could I identify and solve by asking some better questions? Um, about a very specific local issue. I could build this questioning muscle by using that question burst process about anything I'm facing in my challenges. Mm-hmm. And so there are ways of, at that micro level, under the radar, doing this. And when I you know, ask more questions, actively engage with the world to get answers, I'm going to solve problems better, and I will be more effective at my, my own personal or team level. Mm-hmm. But the other part for me is, and I often ask this to groups of leaders or students that are AMBAs and mid-career sort of folks, because they say exactly what you're saying, Stu. I get what you're saying, Hal, but I work in an organization that shuts it all down. Mm-hmm. 
And at some point, when I have their trust and they trust me, I ask them, what kind of leader do you want to be in 20 years? What kind of human being do you want to be in 20 years? And, you know, if, if you continue to work in those sorts of environments, that's what you will be in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it's a choice now sitting smack dab in front of you. you know, do I want it? That's a tough question to be asking. Hal, there's two more things I want to ask you about. So a question I've been asking all my guests this year, uh, what do you do to hold yourself accountable for living according to the values that you hold dear? If you can tell me that in 20 seconds. Um, I have a phrase that I live by called loaves and fishes. And the value I have is that if I show up and try, there's a force bigger than I am that could help me potentially make a difference and shine a little bit of light into somebody's dark heart today. That's that's a profound way to think about what you might be able to do every day. Hal, I really appreciate you joining me on the show. Where's the best place for, for listeners to find your book and learn more about your wonderful work? Um, straightforward would be halgregerson.com. Um, and if that seems too complicated, just Hal Gregerson, and you'll find me at MIT or at halgregerson.com, and I'd love to engage. All right. Hal Gregerson, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Stu. It's been a pleasure. I hope you found my conversation with Hal Gregerson about allowing space for questions and the importance of questioning, smart questioning, curious questioning, open questioning. I hope you found it to be eye-opening. So now here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Think about a problem you are now facing in your life, at work, at home, in the community, And then set aside four minutes, seems to be the magic amount of time, four minutes to do nothing other than generate questions about this dilemma, about this problem. No answers, no solutions, just write out the questions or think through and then record somehow just the questions. See where this takes you. Does it help you to have a new perspective, to see the situation in a fresh light that perhaps opens new pathways for thinking, for new action? And if this works for you, how might you use this method in other relationships at work or at home or in your community? Let me know what you discover. I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, Check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, 
total leadership. Be a better leader. Have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.